0: The heart of the Buddhist teachings is freeing the mind from the habits of suffering, from the habits of envy and greed, from the habits of mind, of fear, of anger, of hatred. And all the practices that we do, all the different practices, of generosity, of mindfulness, of concentration, of loving-kindness, really all have this end goal of freedom. A unique aspect of the Buddhist teachings is that it both begins and ends with wisdom. Wisdom is not a matter of belief, and it's not a matter of dogma. Our whole spiritual path, or this whole spiritual path, Unfolds through our own investigation of what is true. The clear seeing into the nature of our mind comes from this investigating power. And so that's what we cultivate, that's what we practice. So, the question for this evening that I'd like to explore is how do we train in wisdom? Now what's the investigation that we undertake that illuminates the nature of our minds? In one very far-reaching aspect, and this has tremendously broad and deep implications in this very far-reaching aspect, we can see that wisdom arises from an exploration and an understanding of impermanence, from a direct, deep experience of impermanence. Now we need to go from an intellectual level of understanding to the immediate, intuitive, direct experience of it, because we all know that things change. and We know that conceptually, we know it intellectually, We know it somewhat experientially, but we don't quite believe it. (laughs) Because we're not living that understanding. So somehow we have to make some kind of shift in ourselves, in our perception of it, in our insight into it, so that we are actually living that wisdom moment to moment. When we deeply and truly see the truth of change, the truth of impermanence, the heart and mind relax, and we can feel that relaxation. Now, It's a letting go of struggle, a letting go of many kinds of suffering in our lives. We can see this clearly with respect to our changing bodies. If we are attached to them staying a certain way. When they change, and they change through accidents, they change through disease, they change simply through the process of aging, of getting older, if we are attached to them staying a certain way or staying the same, we are going to suffer when they inevitably change. It's very different and difficult to see that these changes are not a mistake. You know, how often does something happen and we, oh, if only that hadn't happened. As if it's possible that it couldn't have happened. You know, there's a great Goldstein law of the Dharma. <laughs> this, is, this is my contribution to the unfolding of 2,500 years of Buddhism. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) (laughs) Changes are not a mistake. It's just the way things are. It's the Dharma. It's the truth of things. It's what happens to everyone. I had just Many, of course, as we all have, kind of striking examples of this. But some years ago, I had a hiking accident where I slipped on a rock and I really hurt my knee. And it was hurt pretty badly, and people had to carry me back to where I was staying. And that evening, I was in the middle of a busy schedule of teaching, you know, and a lot of traveling, and my mind just started to go in this direction of how could I have been so stupid? I wasn't mindful enough. You know how could this have happened? But then I saw, kind of, sort of heading down that direction. You know, of self-blame and self-pity and worry, and and that's not the way to go. And I just started reflecting on, given a body, these things are going to happen. And so another little kind of mantra came to mind, which has really proved very helpful to me. You know, and I, I really bring it to mind uh, fairly often. And that is kind of the, the Vipassana mantra of change. Anything can happen anytime. You know, anything can happen anytime. We just don't know. And rather, when that comes to my mind, rather than that being kind of a depressing thought, you know, and a fearful one, has exactly the opposite result. When I remind myself, yes, this is the law, this is the nature of things, anything can happen anytime, I find my heart and my mind relax. Instead of living defensively, trying to protect myself from the truth of change, which is rather a futile endeavor. Anything can happen anytime, just acknowledge it yeah that's that's how it is. and things get much more open and much freer. Seeing the impermanent changing nature of all experience really deconditions our tendency to grasp, to cling, to hold on. Now remember kind of having intimations of this very early on in my practice in ways that were helpful. When I first went to India, and this was after, after I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, went back to India look, looking for a teacher, settled in in Bodh Gaya, and began my intensive practice. But the early, the early years were really hard, you know, and my mind was very restless, very not at all concentrated. And I'd get discouraged and I'd get depressed, and kind of all these feelings that can happen. And I remember being in one of those down moods about my practice and thinking to myself, in six months, are you going to even remember that you were feeling this way? No. And not only six months, five months, three months, two months, one week, you know, in three days. And it was just a way by extrapolating over time, you know, and remembering this truth of change, it really lightened. Realizing, yeah, this is a feeling and it's coming up now and it's going to change. It's not going to last. What's so amazing about the seductive power of the world, and this really is. amazing to me. When we look back at experience, when we look back at all our past experience it's so obvious the dreamlike ephemeral, ephemeral nature of it all. It's so clear when we look back. Just think over these days of the retreat. Think of your best experience, you know, just where you were really feeling great. You know, and then think of your worst experience, when you felt terrible. Where are they now? You know, in this moment, where are those experiences? They're gone. It's just, like, it's just like kind of waking up from a dream. Now, this is the strange part, the amazing part. We know that when we look back... And yet when we look ahead at experiences to come, we are continually dazzled by the possibilities. (laughs) You know, as if the next thing we're wanting to do is somehow going to fulfill us and make us happy and make us complete. Even though the ten zillion things that we've done in the past haven't and we know it we know it when we look back but so it's pretty strange for most of us this really is our lives this is how we're living you know looking forward and leaning forward leaning into anticipating just the next event in our lives the next thing we want to do the next retreat the next vacation the next project You know, the next relationship, the next meal. It's always... And even in meditation, we do that leaning, anticipating the next breath. You know, it can get that, it can get that subtle. Now, have you fantasized at all about the first thing you're going to do when you leave the retreat, you know? (laughs) You know, maybe it's connecting with your partner, or you know, telling your friends about your knee pain, (laughs) or, you know, sleeping in your own bed, or having a cappuccino, or whatever, whatever it might be. Yet each one of those experiences which the mind can so look forward to and anticipate and plan and think about endlessly is also just going to be very quickly in the past. It's just—it's interesting that we don't stop to reflect more deeply on this, you know, as a way of unhooking from this samsaric revolution, just going around and around and around. You know, as we get older, it also seems to go that much more quickly. There's a kind of a wonderful statement somebody read—I read that. uh, They said that after they turned 55, breakfast started happening every 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, and it is really like that, you know. (laughs) So this is our life, you know, and it's going like that. It's going very quickly. Now there's a kind of interesting paradox or something like a paradox about the spiritual life and that is that as objects of desire as objects of wanting all of the great variety of experience really leaves us unfulfilled now as objects of desire as objects of wanting whatever it is It is ultimately unfulfilling as we have seen from all our past experience. But these very same experiences that as objects of wanting leave us unsatisfied, as objects of mindfulness become the vehicle for our awakening. So this is really important because in talking about the impermanent nature of all this and how ultimately unsatisfying it all is, the implication is not that we pull back from experience, as some people might assume. Rather, it's learning to not hold on. That is the implication, and that is the doorway to freedom. So liberating insight, really freeing insight into the nature (coughs) of impermanence, comes in several ways. And I think it's really worth considering how we can deepen, in a very immediate, direct way, our understanding of change so that it it becomes real for us and we're living that insight. So the first way happens as our mindfulness and our concentration get stronger and deeper and more stable and steadier we begin to see impermanence on increasingly refined and momentary levels. It's almost as if uh, our attention, our awareness, becomes microscopic. And in looking more closely at experience, we see that what appears normally as being solid and fixed and stable, we see as being very insubstantial you know, and in a state of continual flux. And we can see this in very ordinary experiences, in a breath, you know, when we're, or in a step, or in a sound. What's the sound? That sound is not one thing. You know, when we're listening carefully, there's, there's so many things going on, moment after moment. And the same thing in a breath or a step. They're not one thing. It's not something solid and substantial. The breath is made up of innumerable micro-sensations, or you know, the sensations in the movement. So as our mind gets more stable, we really are tuning in on that level. You now It's like looking at a familiar object under a high-power microscope. It's another whole reality that's revealed. Well, think of the last time you went to the movies, a really good movie, absorbed in the story, really into it, lost in the story, you know, and with all the attendant feelings and emotions that might have arisen. And then you glance up, or happen to glance up, and you see the beam of light, you know, projected on the screen, and you realize that nothing whatsoever is really going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not as if people are really falling in love or getting killed or getting chased or you know whatever the movie's about. And it's just so interesting when we're lost in the story; we are in it and we're responding to it, and our whole mind-body is engaged with it. And yet from another level of understanding, there's no one up there. (laughs) So I want to read something to you, which I recently came across, which is another kind of description of a level of reality and a way of understanding how we perceive things that we don't usually consider. It's a little long, um, and it's kind of a... Well, <laughs> it's kind of scientific language that, if you can get into it, it creates an amazing sense of what's going on. So let's give it a try. Consider a world without consciousness. The darkness is a bubbling cauldron of energy and vibrating matter locked in the dance of thermal agitation. Through shared electrons or the strange attraction of unlike charges. Quivering molecules, not free to roam, absorb and emit their characteristic quantal packages of energy with the surrounding fog. Free gas molecules, molecules almost oblivious to gravity, but buffeted in all directions by their neighbors, form swirling, turbulent flows or march in zones of compression and expansion. A massive solar flux and cosmic radiation from events long past crisscross space with their radiant energy and silently mix with the thermal glow of living creatures whose hungry metabolic systems pour their infrared waste into the chaotic milieu. But within the warmth of their sticky protein bodies, the dim glow of consciousness is emerging to impose its own brand of organization on this turbulent mix of energy matter. The active filter of consciousness illuminates the darkness, discards all irrelevant radiation, and in a grand transmutation, converts and amplifies the relevant converts and amplifies the relevant. Dead molecules erupt into flavors of bitterness or sweetness. Electromagnetic frequencies burst with color. Hapless air pressure waves become the laughter of children. And the impact of a passing molecule fills a conscious mind with the aroma of roses on a warm summer afternoon. It's from a book called Why We Feel by Victor Johnson. And I just you know, what is really going on? <laughs> you know, and how much does our own mind and the nature of consciousness and perception create our world? So it's not these different examples. It's not to suggest that we don't engage with ordinary reality or with the movie or even with the movies and dramas of our lives. But if we see in some way on a deeper level, if we see that in the movie theater there really is nothing happening on the screen you know, if we have some perception that this whole mind-body is a system that is somehow creating and interpreting some much more basic elemental energies, then even as we're engaged in the world and engaged with each other, we're less likely to get caught up in our reactions, in our judgments, less likely to get caught up in suffering. The experience of freedom also comes from a wise and careful attention to impermanence on much more familiar levels. This was kind of a little cosmic. But even when we look at the very familiar levels of our lives, liberating insight can come. We just look at the world around us. Change is happening in nature all the time. The change of seasons, the change of weather. We see the changes in the environment. We see the changes, the, the birth and death of civilizations. We see the changes in our relationships, in our work. We see the changes in our bodies, in our minds. It's so obvious. We can really see when we look that everything is disappearing moment after moment, new things arising, not only every hour or every minute, but it's really a momentary process. So just if you can remember between now and the end of the talk, a little experiment you can make. After the talk, when you get up and are leaving the hall, just walk out with a very open, choiceless awareness and simply notice the flow of changing experience of sights and sensations in the body and sounds and thoughts that may be coming and really notice how moment after moment it's something else that's arising and passing, arising and passing. All of this is so ordinary that mostly we overlook it. We're just not paying attention to this truth which is staring us in the face. Everything in the world, everything in the universe is in the state of constant flux. We're kind of sleepwalking through it, not paying attention. And so we miss... The every day, every moment opportunity to practice the mind of non-grasping. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master, died some time ago. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace your struggles with the world will have come to an end. And it's interesting to observe the mind, observe the quality of the mind when it is seeing the truth of change directly. Because right in that moment, I think you will find in the moment of seeing directly, not not thinking about it, but actually seeing clearly the changing nature, if you check out your mind at that time, I think you will find that in those moments, the mind is not grasping, is not clinging. So we get the taste, a very real taste of freedom. A careful observation of some other very obvious truths also can help jolt us out of this complacency you know with which we're often living our lives you know out of the deeply rooted habits we have the patterns of attachment and craving and clinging some very basic reflections one of them is that the end of birth is death and really reflecting on this this is the Buddha talked a lot about reflection on death as a meditation object. The end of birth is death. So that for all of us, our lives are just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until they're over. But how often do we really give serious thought to that? You know, Mostly, I think our thoughts seem to be in the direction that well, other people are dying, you know. But how often do we kind of make the connection? <laughs> you know, in, and in our culture, I mean, if you, if you kind of talk about reflecting on dying and reflecting on death, you know, people think you're a little weird and it's morbid and the whole culture is covering it up. I mean, it's amazing being at a funeral and kind of seeing a corpse and all made up and dressed up. Sometimes they never looked so good. <laughs> you know? Because we don't like to face the reality. You know, That was one of the great things about India. And being in India, kind of the face of death is just so out there. And it's, it's a powerful reflection. It's a reminder. Yes, this is the nature. The end of birth is death for all of us. And so as a kind of thought experiment which might help us connect with this, if you could imagine, just imagine being on your deathbed. And of course we don't really know how we're going to die, but for the sake of the experiment, we'll give you a bed. (laughs) Okay, so you're on your deathbed. (laughs) And I don't know whether you can actually kind of imagine, or it might take a little work or reflection, but really that we're dying. And to see or get a sense of, well, what is it that the mind would be holding on to? You know, what is it attached to? Is it attached to the body and fearful of losing it? Is it attached to other people, to the people we love and afraid of letting go? Be very helpful now, rather than at that time, to begin to see, well, where are our deepest attachments? What are we holding on to? Is it possible to practice the letting go now? And to reflect in the time of death what really will be of the greatest value to us. You know, is it what we've accumulated in our lives? Is it what other people can do for us at that time? Probably not. It will be our ability to let go, our ability to rest at ease, at peace. And None of us know. Now, this, this is the great challenge to our practice. Can we practice now? Can we train for that? And a lot of the meditation I really see in that light. That's a training for skillful, wise dying. There are two great examples which I've spoken of often in talks of people people whose death just really inspired me in terms of illustrating the possibility of understanding death as a completely natural process. You know, that it's not this kind of big, scary thing at the end of life, but it's just, it's the end part of life. This is part of nature. So One of the, one of the examples... Uh, is Thoreau who died quite young he died when he was 44 of tb and there's in some books written about him describing his death so i want to just read a few lines from this henry was never affected never reached by his illness Very often I heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever, this after some years of being ill. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt I mean, that's an amazing ease, you know, and of course, you know, you may, as I have just gotten a sense from his wonderful writings, just his understanding and his connection with nature and the laws of nature and just our own lives being part of that, that's an amazing understanding. we can practice that There's, I think the possibility for all of us to come to that place of ease the other example is that of the death of the 16th Karmapa the Karmapa is one of the heads of one of the great Tibetan lineages a very very great being, powerful being and he died some years ago, the 16th died outside of Chicago, body riddled with cancer. And there's in, in some books there's a description of the whole process of his dying. And also very much like Thoreau, in very good spirits throughout. And even in his, as his body was you know, riddled with cancer, and his disciples were gathered all around him, and you know, they, were, they were grieving and upset, and you know, they were losing their beloved teacher said that at one point he turned to them and remarked, don't worry, nothing happens. That's like on the relative level, yeah, there's a body and it's full of cancer and there's birth and death, but that's like the story on the screen, the movie screen. On the level of a more ultimate reality, nothing is happening. It just appears that all of this is going on. And so for me, it just points in a very profound way to a possibility of this incredible transformation of understanding when we come out of the prison of self, of I, of identification with this mind and body into another whole level of understanding what it is that's really going on or not going on. Don't worry, nothing happens. So the reflection on death, this can really wake us up, you know, out of our complacency. We really start to examine, to look and to see the truth of change, the truth of impermanence. The fact and the reflection that the end of all accumulation is dispersion. And everything we get and gather in our lives one way or another is going to be dispersed, and yet we place so much emphasis in our lives about around this accumulation and it's not to say you know that we necessarily kind of give it all up and become monks or nuns and live in a cave in the Malias although that sometimes seems like an attractive option (laughs) but even as we're living just you know our ordinary more or less middle class lives you know in the midst of things can we really understand deeply that none of the stuff we have really means anything at all. It really doesn't. You know, it's nice and we enjoy it and it's fine. But there is no basic meaning or value in it. And so, what are we doing with our energy? The end of accumulation is dispersion. So can we be in the world in a freer way? and even enjoy the things of the world in a freer way, without that sense of you know, craving or addiction to things. The end of birth is death. The end of accumulation is dispersion. The end of all meeting is separation. You know, all the people we meet, those casually and those intimately, and the nature of all our relationships, they are gonna all end one way or another in separation. And again, this is not something unfortunate. And it's it's just the way things are. This is the truth of change. And yet, how often do we become so entangled in our relationships? that separation from one cause or another leads to tremendous sorrow. The Buddha commented that in the course of our countless lifetimes, we have shed more tears over the loss of loved ones than there are waters in all the great oceans. can we wake up, can we see the nature of our relationships just like the nature of everything else is subject to this great truth of change, of impermanence. And It doesn't mean a pulling back, it means a not holding on, a not clinging, a not grasping. When we see the impermanent nature of every aspect of the world, of ourselves, of our relationships, when we really see repeatedly and directly, not conceptually, when we're really, really seeing it, it reorients our minds towards care and loving-kindness rather than towards attachment and clinging. So it's not we become uncaring or unloving. We actually become more loving and more caring because it's free of attachment and clinging. The Buddha expressed the liberating power of this insight, direct insight into impermanence in one amazingly startling statement. I mean... To me, it's an extremely radical statement when he said, it is better to live for a single day seeing deeply the momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. Well, what is that saying about all the things we so value in our lives. He's saying it's better to live a single day seeing deeply and incisively the momentariness of phenomena than a hundred years without seeing it, no matter what else we're doing. Why? Now, what's the base? That's, That's a very strong statement. Because it is that insight, when we really see it for ourselves, that deconditions this powerful force of attachment and clinging and grasping that motivates our lives. It cuts through so much of what causes suffering for us. It's really the doorway to freedom. Now what grows from this ground of wisdom, you know, this deep seeing on all of these levels and all of these manifestations, the truth of impermanence, the truth of change, what grows from this ground of wisdom is what in Buddhism is called bodhijitta. Bodhijitta is this rare flower, which means bodhijitta means bodhi is wisdom and jitta is the heart mind. So, bodhicitta is the heart mind of wisdom. And it has two levels. On the relative level, bodhicitta is compassion. You know, and it's just that strong motivation to alleviate the suffering of beings. His relative bodhicitta is the aspiration we can cultivate to awaken for the benefit of all beings. I find that it's very helpful for me, and so I just offer this as a possible suggestion, at the beginning and end of each sitting, just to frame the sitting. At the beginning of the sitting, you know, I'll begin just with an aspiration. You can frame it in different language. May I quickly be liberated for the welfare and benefit of all. Or may my heart be purified for the welfare and benefit of all. So it sets the aspiration of bodhicitta. And at the end of a sitting, you know, the dedication of merit has been doing every evening. May the merit of my practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. It sort of makes our path, it makes our journey very broad, very wide, very connected. That's the relative level. The ultimate level of bodhicitta is the wisdom mind of awareness. Sometimes it's called the innate wakefulness of mind, the understanding that the very nature of mind is awareness. This innate wakefulness of mind is that mind that is free of clinging, free of grasping. Now in the nature of this awareness, in some way is the great mystery of our lives. Because when we look for it, when we we look for this awareness, this ultimate bodhicitta, there's nothing to find. We can't locate it. We can't find it. It's like open, empty space. And yet there is this innate knowing capacity. When you hear a sound, very convenient having this bell. (laughs) Okay. Do you have to do anything to know that sound? Do you have to struggle? Do you have to make effort to you... No, the nature of the mind is awareness? There's a book by Robert Kaplan about the history of the number zero. And the name of the book is The Nothing That Is. And when I saw the title of that book, it just completely intrigued me because It seemed just a wonderful description of the nature of mind, the nothing that is. And so the opening couple of sentences of the book, which is about as far as I could get. (laughs) (laughs) But it was enough. It's like I got everything I needed. He wrote, when you look at zero, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. Look at nothing and you look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. That is a wonderful description of this empty, open, aware nature of mind. The nothing that is. Now, this absolute bodhicitta, the nothing that is, the wisdom mind, is not something we need to look for outside of ourselves. And this is the great, amazing discovery. It is already here. It is the nature of the mind. It's not something we have to get, it's not something we have to cultivate. the Buddha gave a very simple instruction which leads us right into the experience of this. He said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. And the further shore is not out there. The further shore is right here. It's the mind, free of any grasping. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. There's an image that describes this movement from delusion to wisdom from delusion to awareness and the image used is that of ice and water now ice is solid it's frozen it's hard and in this context it represents the mind which is attached the mind which is clinging the mind which is grasping the mind which is fixated and when that's what's happening In the mind, it gets very hard and contracted. It's our normal, deluded state when we're caught up and identified with the body, with our thoughts, with our reactions, with our judgments, with our emotions, with awareness itself. When we are identified with any arising experience, when we're holding on in any way, that's ice. Now we get attached to sense pleasures. This attachment goes very deep. The Dalai Lama tells a wonderful story of being at a conference in Los Angeles, and he was just being driven every day to the, to the hotel where the conference was, going down the street where there were a lot of shops selling all the latest technological you know, toys. And at the end of the week of the conference, he made the comment to people, And every day I rode by and I was looking in the windows. By the end of the week, I found myself wanting things even though I didn't know what they were. (laughs) And this is the Dalai Lama. (laughs) So it's a strong tendency, this wanting mind. We need to see it. We need to really pay attention. That's what our practice is about developing the mindfulness which sees it. So we're not just caught in the habit of it, that, in that fixation. You know, we're attached to our opinions about things. Another great arena of attachment. We're attached to being right, even when it's things we know nothing about. <laughs> and I think it's very instructive to pay attention to that. We have opinions about everything, and it's not it's really not a problem having an opinion, it's a problem being attached to our opinions. It's the great uh, Zen master Bangi you know, where, where he said, "Don't side with yourself." and that's very good advice with respect to the various opinions we have you know not to get attached in that way. Attached to sense pleasures, attached to opinions, attached to the strong sense of I, of self. And every time we are identified with the thoughts or feelings or body or emotions or whatever, we're creating this sense of self, an I, and we get very attached to it. This is ice. You know, this, this is the mind of delusion Water represents the nature of awareness of the wisdom mind free of any clinging, free of any attachment. It's unfrozen, it's fluid, it's the mind not clinging to anything and therefore completely responsive to changing circumstances because it's not fixed, it's not fixated. Now there's some good news in all this, and that is that water, or the wisdom mind, is nothing other than melted ice. So the taste of freedom is not some far off experience. It's not something we kinda need to search for. It's rather this very mind unfrozen. Unfixated. So there are two related mantras. These are my own little mantras that really point to the immediacy of realizing this ultimate bodhicitta They've helped me a lot, and so maybe they will help in your own practice. One of the mantras is it's already here and i've used it very often in my practice when i feel myself striving reaching leaning forward as if as if it's in the next moment or as if it's in the next experience i remind myself it's already here and in that very moment i can psh, there's the settling back into that open empty awareness it's already here The second second mantra, which you need to... uh, has a rather hard uh, syntax. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. (laughs) So it's not that you have to practice, 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 practice to get to an experience not to cling to. (laughs) If the wisdom mind is the mind of no clinging, why not not cling now? (laughs) It is always and immediately available. So this in conjunction with it's already here really can help us drop right back into This nature of awareness, the open, empty, the nothing that is. It's already here. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Don't cling now. Sometimes we think we're water, we think we're not clinging, we think the ice has melted, but it's really slush. <laughs> because there are very subtle levels of clinging which are worth paying attention to. You know, subtle attachments to sense pleasures, even more subtle attachments to meditative states, you know, to calm, to peace, to quiet, to luminosity, To we, we can get attached. That's a fixation, that's slush. We can get identified with awareness itself even even as we begin to taste this nature of mind as awareness we can begin to identify with that so again it's a continual process of refining our awareness refining our ability to see where we're caught where we're attached As we settle back more and more you know, in the direction of this ultimate bodhicitta, the empty open wisdom mind of awareness free of clinging, it manifests as a great responsive compassion. That is the manifestation of emptiness, the manifestation of wisdom. And the great, the great Tibetan master Dilgo Kense Rinpoche said, when you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this is very important to see the relationship between the relative and ultimate bodhicitta They are expressions of each other when we recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So as we see more and more clearly the momentary changing nature of phenomena, which is what our practice is all about, we're really paying attention to what is all around us all the time. When we refine our awareness of the momentary changing nature, the mind lets go. In letting go of grasping, in letting go of clinging, we actually are watering the seed of bodhicitta within us this aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all. And so our practice all comes together. With greater mindfulness and steadiness and concentration, we see impermanence on clearer and clearer, in a clearer and clearer way, on deeper and deeper levels. As we see impermanence, the mind lets go. As the mind lets go, we experience this open, empty nature of awareness that awareness manifests as compassion. We water the seed of bodhicitta within us, the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all. So I'd just like to close with a quotation from Thoreau again, which I think is points to the power of our watering the seed within us. He said, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there and I am prepared to expect wonders. We're no, Just planting a seed, it's very humble. No, we're not creating some big yes, I'm gonna go out and save the world and very humble. We're just the seed of an aspiration that our practice and our lives be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And we water it. We water it with our practice, we water it with our lives. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.